Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. The morning after the first Saturday, first full Saturday of college football season, we've got a lot of action to talk about, Bruce. Towards the end of the podcast, we will address the fact that uh, on a Friday afternoon before a holiday weekend, the uh, entire postseason model of the whole sport got changed. Um, but we want to start with the football uh, okay, so I went into the day thinking, you know, certain games would be the highlight games and others wouldn't. And what I think were those it's amazing. So what were those games that you you were expecting? Well, obviously, Ohio State-Notre Dame was the headliner. Um, I And I was really excited for Oregon-Georgia, and that was over in about 10 minutes. But I do think the game of the day, well, <laughs> the game of the day could be argued that it was UNC-Appalachian State, 63-61. Or if you're like a real morbid sicko, Iowa, South Dakota State. But no, I think it was uh, Florida, Utah, um, which I was interested in going into the to the day, obviously. Utah being my playoff pick. I'm not sure that's going to happen now. Anthony Richardson. You've been hearing about him for a long time. He, I frankly thought it a little bit uh, premature that he was showing up in some first round projections when he had barely played last year. Uh, now I get it. Yeah, I thought he was the star of the first day. You know, there are other people who had more impressive stats. I'm not sure anybody who's more impressive highlights in terms of the playmaking skills. Like, he was a guy who was on our top 50 freaks list because he's 6'4", he's almost 240 pounds. He runs 4'4", throws the football 75 yards. But there's so much other stuff that he is able to do because he's such a special athlete. And we've seen big quarterbacks who can move we haven't seen that many that big who can move this well. And I think what was interesting is this was a really good defense and a really physical team he played and gave all sorts of problems to. This was not a group of five team or this was not a FCS team where he looked great doing some of this stuff. And I think what I, I took away from this, and this is one of the games that I felt more, maybe more confident than you did, you know, Florida is a tough place to play. It's a long trip for Utah, um, and he is a different kind of problem than what probably Utah has seen. The other thing that for me is I think people, you and I probably are different in this than a lot of other people because I think we both like the Billy Napier hire. But from just from like kind of drilling down and talking to some people, I think there's been more hesitation on Billy Napier than I expected. Um, I think the staff is good. Some other people seem like they weren't as impressed because there weren't a lot of big names. You know, it was a program that imploded last year under Dan Mullen. I think he himself, I thought I saw somewhere on social media that he picked Florida to be fourth in their, in did, the, yeah. in their division, which is not a great division after you get past Georgia. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to go out and anoint them and say Florida is going to, you know, push past Georgia this year. But they're going to be one of the most fascinating teams to watch because I feel like the you know, he has a chance to do some things where there's going to be probably more, probably going to be some bad that goes with the good because he's still a young quarterback. But man, I feel like he's going to make the Gators must-see TV all year. Yep. Uh, Kyle Whittingham said after the game, hey, look, the, the cupboard wasn't bare just because Dan Mullen left. And he's not wrong. Halfway through last season, um, well, not halfway through season. Remember early in last season, Florida played Alabama in the Swamp. And you know, it came down to a two-point conversion. Somehow they went from that level of football to getting trucked by South Carolina late in the season, and the whole thing imploded. But we knew there were players in Florida. But Anthony Richardson's one of these guys who 
you know, and, and you're right. Like Utah has a good defense. They're a physical team to their credit. Every time Florida in the second half, every time Florida went down the field, they would come right back too. And obviously it came down to, I mean, you, at the end of the day, Utah still should have won the game. Cam rising throws a, a pick in the end zone. Um, when at that point, that's the, the one thing you, you couldn't afford. Um, he had a good game for the most part. Utah, I thought, acquitted itself well, but they couldn't deal with Anthony Richardson's ability, frankly, his ability to improvise as as best illustrated, I think. I mean, obviously he had the long touchdown run, but that two-point conversion where he's about to get sacked and he pump fakes and then just spins out of it and throws to a wide-open receiver. I'm going to read you a tweet from Greg McElroy last night during the game. Anthony Richardson is the closest thing I've seen to Vince Young in a long time. Thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I thought Vince Young came before Cam Newton. Now, we've discussed Cam a lot. I thought Cam was even, you know, he's the best college quarterback I've ever seen, right? KJ Jefferson gets compared to Cam Newton a lot. Cam, to me, is a little, and that's not, I don't know. I mean, KJ Jefferson is a really talented playmaker in a in a good system. Um, and he's I don't not want Cam to, Newton. Just, I love I love no. him. I love watching him. He's not Cam Newton. The Vince Young comparison, obviously, that's a big one. But I think he's saying that. In fact, I know he's saying because he followed it up. He means, like you said earlier, a guy built like that who can escape. Like Lamar Jackson was incredible, right? He he could get away from anything, but he was he's not the same. Uh, build or style of player as Anthony Richardson. I don't know. I think it's going to be. A do you, by the way, do you remember that the play you're talking about? Yeah, it was one thing. It was different, and it was obviously as an NFL play. So NFL players are next level compared to what you know what Anthony Richardson was going up against yesterday. But there is a famous play by Randall Cunningham against the Giants where he does something that's like just his, his level of balance and body control is remarkable. Now, Randall Cunningham had a cannon for an arm and great wheels, but he was not 240 pounds either. But how he escaped the Giants and made a play and almost made it look effortless, which is like kind of, again, made it look effortless, was that's what the, I felt Anthony Richardson did. He does. He makes it the, the long touchdown run. There is a Utah guy there waiting to tackle him at about the 10-yard line. And he doesn't like pull some sort of serious juke move or hurdle him or anything like that. He just kind of like, I don't feel like getting tackled right now. <laughs> it keeps going. Um, so, yeah, I think he he makes that that team immediately relevant this year. Now, as you said, they're in the same division as Georgia. And Georgia, silly me to think that maybe they might need a little bit of time to reload after losing all those guys to the NFL. Uh, that did not appear to be the case against Oregon who looked completely overmatched. Uh, don't know yet if that's a sign that uh, of trouble this season. But, you know, generally teams that lose 49-3 to in their first game don't turn around and have great seasons. But, um, obviously, Stetson Bennett probably played his best game of his Georgia career. Um, just seemed like everybody, everybody on that team caught a pass at some point. But I think holding Oregon without a touchdown in the first game post uh, N'Kobe Dean, Jordan Davis, all those guys, um, is pretty scary if you're, if you're in the rest of the SEC to, to realize that, there are, that they could lose all those guys, replace them. Um, it was uh, Malachi Starks, a freshman, a true freshman safety, who Ooh, had that, what a play that, was. that yeah. acrobatic interception of Bo Nix, and he also led the team in tackles. So... Um, kind of like Alabama does, right? Every year, doesn't matter who they lose to the NFL, they come back and they're still Alabama. That's what I took away from Georgia. All right, so just in the big picture of that game, mm-hmm. which was a more wow thing for you? Georgia looks absolutely primed to reload, or Oregon and Dan Lanning has his hands full, and you know what? They weren't preseason picked to win the the Pac-12, but where did you have them in your poll? Somewhere in fifth, top 15? Top 15, they're number 11 in the, like, on paper, that was the number three team facing the number 11 team. What it looked like was the number three team playing a tune-up against a Sunbelt team. Um, And I don't think that means that Oregon doesn't have players because 
Um, and this is the same program that went and won at Ohio State last year. Um, we know how well Mario Cristobal recruited, but they did look completely out of sorts. Bo Nix's first start at quarterback for Oregon could not have gone much worse. So, like I said, I think that probably means you're not going to see Oregon finish the season ranked 11th in the country. Maybe they can still have a decent season. But, you know, it, 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 the takeaway to me was much more like, wow, Georgia is not taking a, is not going to be taking a step back here. Yeah, Oregon did not look like they were prepared for that, um, for what they were about to see or what they saw. You know, you, you'd look, I don't know if the broadcast, you know, like Kenny Dillingham was, his, you know, his first real big stage as a play caller. You know, Bo Nix is, you know, he's seen Georgia. This is the fourth time he played them. Now, he didn't play them particularly well. But it was, like, I did not expect what I saw. Like, I, I think I'm a little higher on Stetson Bennett as a quarterback maybe than you've been for a while. Like he had a oh, really no, I came game. around to Stetson Bennett by certainly the Michigan playoff game. I think he's okay. really good. I think most of the country, I think the defense was so dominant last year that the, they didn't really notice that. I think Georgia was like sixth in the country in yards per play. And Stetson Bennett was the number four rated passer. So they were already pretty good. Uh, but this was definitely the best I've seen him. And it, and it is a defense with a lot of athletes. Now, again, they did not look like they were on their game, and we'll see how much they can grow from that. Like, I'll be honest, I think I took more from the Oregon side than I did from the Georgia side, and that's not to slight the dogs. I mean, they were my preseason number three team, but I think the question was going to be new head coach, guys honestly in new roles. I mean, Kenny Dillingham, I said, you know, first-time play caller, really. He's been an offensive coordinator, but, like, he's got a defensive head coach. This is not a case where, you know, you're the first-time offensive coordinator, but you work for an old offensive guy. You know, Tosh Lupoy had been a defensive coordinator a little bit at Alabama, but it wasn't. You know, and Dan Lanning, that's his, his specialty, but he's still a young coach, too. And so, you know, I'm very curious to see how they pick the pieces up from that. I mean, that was a big one for me. Um, the other surprise for me a little bit was I was very impressed by Tyler Buckner and Notre Dame. I know they didn't have a great second half, but they went toe to toe with Ohio state. Their defense, you know, their defense played pretty well other than, you know, Al Golden got caught. He gambled and people were like, wait a minute, you did this. You brought your safeties up and, and CJ Stroud ate the blitz up. And that I felt like was the backbreaker for, for Notre Dame on one of these where there's been so many games where I feel like Notre Dame has played on a big stage and they've either gotten embarrassed or you've looked at it and go, they didn't belong on the big stage. And considering it was Tyler Buckner's first start, um, I thought they, you know, no moral victories here, but I thought they acquitted themselves really well. It's also, you know, really the first, you know, big game for, I know there was a bowl game that Marcus Freeman coached in, but given that, I thought they, I thought it was, I don't say it was a win, but I thought that was a, an impressive showing by the Irish. Mm, I think it was an impressive showing for a half. I think that you're like, what's, what's the difference between this and say, you know, I think that the, the margin of their semifinal against Alabama that one year was like 24 to 10. Um, I think it was 31. To I feel like this is the same script that, that in many Notre Dame big games with one with one twist, which is normally with their offense in these big games, they can run the ball. They can they can get, you know, some yardage that way. But they're, that's usually when they get exposed for not having enough players on the perimeter. They actually had four or five long pass plays. Um, like, that's how they were doing it in the first half before things slowed down. But they couldn't run the ball at all. So, I, I don't know. I think it, when you're a top-five team, scoring 10 points on the road against anybody is not I something think, they should be applauded for. I did not think, you know, whether they were a top-five team or not. I think in the beginning of the year, that's so arbitrary, to be honest, especially once you get past the first three. Um, my, my thing was what's different about this than the game you were talking about. And, you know, like in fairness, that was a 31 to 14 game Alabama had. 
So it wasn't like it was that close, right? Um, it was 21 to seven at half. It was 28 to seven uh, in the third quarter. So it wasn't like it was that close. But Ian Book had played a lot of football at that point. And it was at the Rose Bowl. This was a night game. It was Tyler Buckner's first start. And it was a first start against Ohio State and a really, really um, talented offense, especially. You know, and a, honestly, a new defense coordinator they hadn't, you know, hadn't seen. So I just thought with that as a backdrop, I thought they were going to get blown out of the building. I thought it was going to be, you know, 48 to 17 kind of game. And, you know, and like, I actually picked them to lose by 10. So maybe that's why we huh? are looking at this a little bit differently. What is your takeaway from Ohio State, though? I mean, C.J. Stroud was not looking like C.J. Stroud for most of that game, especially after Jackson Smith and Jigba went out. But then I remember looking at it in like late first half or halftime, and I was like, does Ryan Day remember Travion Henderson is on the team? He had like four or five carries at that point. Well, in the second half, they pivoted to that, and they ran the ball down Notre Dame's throat. Uh, but it was, Mayan, Mayan, Mayan Mayan, yeah, it was Mayan Williams who I felt like really stepped in and gave them a big spark. I think, look, I think they'll be able to run the ball against people if they if they need to. I think they are a more complete offense than they were last year. As you said, you know, you were down your best receiver pretty much there, and I thought that hamstrung them a lot, and I, I just felt like, they didn't never look like they were in rhythm at that point. You know, it took them a while, maybe into the second half. And credit Notre Dame. I felt like Notre Dame had a good game plan. It's just when they made a bad play call, it burned them. You know, and that was to me the difference in the game. Because once that happened, it was like, man, they're not going to be able to get out of this hole. You know, it was almost like, all right, now they they don't have an answer to this. And I thought, you know, it's again. You know that I think that's why Ohio State is a a national title contender, a real one. I think, and maybe the the gap there, Notre Dame's margin for error, just isn't you know isn't big enough, especially when you play a team like that. They don't have you know Michael Mayer's a really really good tight end, but their running back room has been depleted by injury, and the receiving room, which wasn't deep to begin with, also depleted by injury. And it I feel like it showed up. Now the quarterback can make plays with his legs, but you know, to me, that was, you know, I thought that was a good game. Honestly, it got it got a little bit. Um, Anthony Richardson kind of stole the show that night. You know, he did. I found like, myself watching cool. that much more than Ohio State Notre Dame. But look, I don't, I don't think uh, if I'm an Ohio State fan, I'd actually be pretty pleased because your big question coming into the season was defense. They held them to ten points, and you know that the. the it was never realistic to think that they were going to score 45 points, 50 points every week. But they, you found out that, you know, if things aren't going well for the passing game, which really was, you know, when you think of Ohio State the past couple of years, you think of the passing game. When things aren't going well, that they can turn the ball into, you know, run physical. I mean, I know you, the quotes in the, in the scene of, from that game afterward was, was Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson being ecstatic that they showed that they can win a game that way. So... Um, I, my, pers- my expectations of Ohio state haven't changed. Like you said, legit national title contender. And I guess either way I would put his Notre Dame health serve. <laughs> it was about what I expected from them in that game. Just, it looked a little different, but at the end of the day, I thought it would be one of those, like, let's put it this way. At no point in the game did I think they were going to win. Did you? Uh, I didn't No, I did not. I thought yeah. eventually it was going to, you know, kind of the dam was going to break. It didn't quite do that, but. Doesn't mean they can't turn around and go ten and two as they often do, um, but but that that was that was you know that's basically it's part of why Brian Kelly's at LSU right now. I think he got frustrated that they just couldn't. They're good. They're really good. They've been winning 10, 11 games a year, but they can't quite close that gap all the way with the elite programs. Well, let's see if Marcus Freeman's recruiting. He's recru- he seems to be recruiting at a slightly you know better yep. level now. So let's see where that goes. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I do want to talk about, I felt like the the noon window, noon Eastern window, is kind of why college football is college football for a lot yep. of people. It was, it the was fantastic. You, the games you probably didn't expect, maybe didn't have a vested interest in. You know, I felt like it started out with, and this is a probably a two-pronged discussion, with the Iowa-South Dakota State game, which was extremely tight for, you know, on a lot of levels. And that's going on while there's like mayhem in two North Carolina related games. One is UNC against App State. The other one is NC State against East Carolina. Um, You know, let's get to Iowa first. Now, we've talked about South Dakota State before on this podcast. They're a really good FCS team out of the Missouri Valley. They almost and probably should have beat Minnesota the year that Minnesota had a great run. This game was so weird to me in that Iowa had great field position a bunch of times. Three drives in the first half started in in Jackrabbit territory. Their punter was the star of the show. But then they could do nothing on offense. I mean, absolutely nothing. And if you're an Iowa fan, even if you're not an Iowa fan, like how do you – I mean, do you look at Brian Ferentz and go, what's going on here? Like this is – is this getting worse? Like, what is your takeaway from, from watching that? It's that? getting worse. They were the 121st ranked offense last season. Kirk Ferentz didn't make any change of any kind, and, you know, including the quarterback. And they come out in the first game, if you're an Iowa fan, you know, college football, that's the thing. You spend eight months getting your hopes up that this is going to be different. And sometimes they get crushed in the first game. And you're not playing uh, Michigan. You're not playing Wisconsin. You're playing... South Dakota State, good FCS program, still FCS program. And they gained 166 yards. There were some amazing historical factoids that came out of that game. Uh, they are the first team since at least 2000, we don't have the records before that, to s- score exactly seven points without scoring a touchdown. Uh, it was two safeties. Um, I don't know the exact, it's two point something yards per play. Like 2.7. 2.72. That puts them, only only Bowling Green and Middle Tennessee of FBS programs are worse at this point. Jeez. Well, it was the lowest yards per play of a winning team in FBS since 2016. And again, this is against an FCS team. I mean, we're sitting here laughing and joking, but at some point, um, like the, the, the nepotism here is kind of off the charts. Um, I was thinking about this last night because this is, this is this has happened before. Like in, you see, coaches hire their sons a lot of times, and like I remember the beginning of the end for Bobby Bowden was when he when Mark Rick left to be that Georgia head coach and he hired Jeff Bowden to be his OC, and things went downhill. Um, so I want I'm gonna I'm gonna I came up with this analogy last night. If you if Ben grows up and goes to work for you. Okay, your son is working for you and he's terrible at his job. You're not going to look at that objectively. You're not going to be like, yeah, he's got to go. By the way, Ben's not going to look at you objectively after if he ever listens to this podcast. <laughs> he's, I'm not saying he is going to be terrible. I'm saying hypothetically, um, like you can't look at your own child objectively. So I'm sure in Kirk Ferentz's mind, it's like everything else is the problem or yeah, we just gotta, you know, we just gotta go practice and work on it. No, your son is terrible, terrible at his job. By the way, he took over the quarterbacks this year too, and Spencer Petrus. I mean, I felt bad for him. He's getting booed, like roundly booed, by the crowd halfway through the first game of the season. Now their defense is so good, and their punter is so good. Like that was the crazy thing. South Dakota State seemed like they started every drive at like their eight yard line. They could they could never get any sort of field position. So then they end up punting it back to Iowa, who gets good field position and still can't do anything with it. So their defense is so good that that's how they stay in every game, right? They won ten games this way last year. But oh my gosh, it's got to be the most frustrating thing on earth to watch. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, I think the other footnote to this or subplot is, you know, the other night we watched Purdue and Jeff Brom, the best player on his offense, Charlie Jones, you know, he almost got as many touches from Purdue in that game or targets as he, as he did in like two years in Iowa. And he was like an all conference receiver. And it's like, okay, I get there are different offenses and different schemes, but like, you know, you have to th- sit there and go, if you're a receiver, like, look, they've had a great run of tight ends, right? And they have a really good one now in Laporta. And they've had, you know, just, but if you were a wide receiver, man, I, I like, would you look and go, yeah, I'm going to go there. Unless I don't know how they recruit a single wide receiver. I really don't. Yeah, it's like, it was almost like when people would wonder, like, how is Paul Johnson recruiting receivers at Georgia Tech? Right. You know, and he did. There were some real, you know, big-time talents he was able to get to go there. But still, just like, oh, man, this was, it was. And it's not like this was always this way at Iowa, to be clear. The first really good team he had, which was 20 years ago now, had a Heisman runner-up quarterback in Brad Banks. They've had, you know, several quarterbacks that maybe you in the time at college you didn't think were that great, but they went on and played in the NFL, right? Um but this this is just the last couple of years have just been brutal. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, by the way, like so, yes, Brad Banks, we both covered him. was was a terrific college player. He probably threw barely more than twenty passes a game as a senior. So it wasn't like they were like wide open. He was a running quarterback. Um, you know, so I don't know if it was. You know, it was never it was never a wide open offense. And you know, when we've talked to our friend Scott Doctorman, who does such a great job covering Iowa for the Athletic, you know, about this, and Scott's written Scott's written more about this subject probably than anybody in the country. Um, is you know the, the thing you will hear as the explanation, not from Scott, but you know that he gets is complimentary football. And the thing is, it has largely worked for Iowa. Right. I mean, you, I think you and I both agree. Kirk Ferentz is a top 20 coach in college football and he's won a ton of games. He's developed a lot of players. Yet it is. Um, it was I don't even know how to describe it because it was like it was oddly fascinating to watch that game yesterday. I know I ended up watching. Just, you don't go into the day thinking, you're, well, you know, you're going to end up watching a bunch of Iowa, South Dakota State, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. Yeah, there you go. So the joke's on you, Stu. Um, By the way, yeah. I, you mentioned Scott Docterman, who who is fantastic, and he actually, you know, to Brian Ferentz's credit, sat down with Scott this summer and and went through game plans from a couple of the games last season. You know, like walked him through it on the on the dry erase board and whatnot. So it's not like the guy isn't uh, is hiding somewhere. But I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to change. Um, like you said earlier, that game was taking place at the exact same time as the North Carolina Appalachian State game, um, which became a scoregami, which I, and it happens in the NFL and everybody gets all excited. I didn't know it was possible to have a score that's never been had before in college football, given the, you know, how many, games how many more are, games yeah. they've played over the history of the sport. But that was the first ever 63-61 game. And... The thing is, in the second half, there were so many times that you're like, okay, the game's over. UNC's up 14 now. And Appalachian State would come right back. I got a lot of respect for the off that offense. I mean, Chase Bryce two years ago was getting pummeled at Duke. Now he's, he's putting up huge yards. So they got two great running backs. Um, but UNC has a lot of skilled players as well, but no defense, right? They, they still don't have a defense. So um, that was dramatic. NC State, you know, I, for the first time in probably since Philip Rivers was there, I bought into the NC State hype, and they're very, very fortunate they didn't lose to East Carolina. It came down to a missed field goal at the end. Two missed kicks, right? There was one. We were in, we're in the in the avocado room at Fox watching it, and the kicker misses the first one. I think he hooks it, and it's a shorter kick. And I think you know. Chris Peterson references the old um, Ace Ventura line. He gave him the laces. And sure enough, after you, watch the, yep. after you watch the replay, he kind of gives 
it looks like, I'm not saying he definitely did it, but it looked like he kind of mugged the holder as he was walking off the field. <laughs> and then he gets another chance and he misses. And it's like, oh, so um, I don't know. You know, like I'm still a believer in NC State, but that did not give me a lot of confidence that they are a top eight team after seeing how they well, struggled. Well, here's the thing. Like Devin Leary didn't have a great game. And I don't, that doesn't really worry me. I've seen enough good Devin Leary to know that that's not going to be an every week thing. I think credit to East Carolina, uh, credit to Mike Houston. That program had been pretty bad for a while by the time he got there. Uh, yeah, who, gosh, who was that coach? Scotty Montgomery. Yeah, they remember everybody was pretty puzzled and, and ticked off that they fired Ruffin McNeil. Scotty Montgomery made it that much worse. Well, at one point, the, the, the rumblings you heard from people at ECU was they were going to try to fire Ruffin to get Lincoln Riley back because not realizing Lincoln Riley was basically like the godson of Ruffin McNeil, that there was no way he was going to go there and leave Oklahoma as the OC to go back there. So they went to a bowl game, or I don't know, if, I think the bowl got canceled, but they were bowl eligible last time for the first time since 2014. Uh, so you're seeing the progress, and then... I mean, if that team is capable of taking what we both think is like a, at worst, top 15 team to the wire, I think that bodes well for them in the AAC this year. By the way, Cincinnati, uh, you know, I kind of thought this would happen. First game post Desmond Ritter looked pretty out of, it was, it was only a touchdown loss, but they looked pretty out of sorts for much of that game against Arkansas. Houston, everybody's group of five darling, uh, has to go to triple overtime to fend off Another group of five darling UTSA. So I'm saying there might be there might be a path there for East Carolina. Yeah, I think I would not write you know worry too much about Houston. Yeah. I think I think UTSA is really good. Frank Harris is a really good quarterback there. Uh, we like what Jeff Trailer's done. I watched a lot of that game. That that was a really entertaining game as well. Um, one of honestly one of the better games I watched yesterday. So uh, lots of good football. Certainly lots of good football at places that. You know, sometimes it's like, hey, we're thinking about Texas football and we think of it through the prism of how good are the Longhorns or, you know, what's going on with Jimbo as opposed to some of these other programs in the state yeah. that maybe, you know, we don't, we get lost a little That's bit. what drives me crazy about the, I don't know, it's a minority, but it's a loud minority. Oh, they're killing the sport, you know. NIL realignment. They're killing the sport. Who are these, who are these people who they're are They're in saying? the comment sections of my stories. They're in my Twitter replies. Don't look at the comments. Don't look. I mean, why do you do that to yourself? And then you have a Saturday like yesterday, you know, super conferences or not, um, East Carolina is not going to the playoff no matter what the format, no matter whose conferences they're in. But you're riveted by that game. Iowa, South Dakota State, like these, these are games that have zero bearing on who wins the national championship. And they're still highly entertaining and fascinating. That's what's that's the beauty of the sport. Now, I will admit that as you get later into the season, we tend to fixate on the six or eight teams that are still alive for the playoff. Um, maybe this is a little segue into <laughs> into the news. No, I want before we get to the playoff news. Anything else? There are a lot of like um, under the radar things, obviously from Saturdays. There, give me one thing that surprised you. Uh, it's surprise. I expect Arizona to be much improved. I thought Arizona looked really they good did. handling San Diego State and San Diego State's home opener. Jacob Cowing, their their transfer receiver, three touchdown catches. Tedaroa, um, McMillan, the big, you know, probably the biggest recruit they've signed there in a long time, had a touchdown reception early. I thought they're going to be they're going to be very interesting. I don't think they're going to be more than a, maybe a six-win team, but to considering that they barely won one last year, I think they have a chance to to give some people some problems in the Pac-12. I thought that was one that really. I'm going to refer um, to them as the the all Max Olson transfer portal team. Like he's been raving yes. about Jacob it, Cowing since December or January, and, and Jacob Cowing delivered. Um, look, San Diego State... And if you want to find out more about transfers, go look at our <laughs> yes. top 100 portal list. San Diego um, State, so I looked this up last night, up. has had a top 10 defense three years in a row. Maybe they're not going to be at that level this year, but that's a that's a that's quite an opening uh, statement to put up 38 on those guys. So yes, I, I'm going to agree with you on that, even though I did pick. That was my upset special, but I would not have guessed 
Um, Not to be accused of being things. a West Coast homer here, but I, my equivalent to that was going to be uh, Washington. They, you know, their offense was Iowa-esque last year. Uh, Kalen DeBoer comes. They lost their opener to Montana last year, I believe, seven to three or fourteen to seven. Like that was your first sign of trouble. Kalen DeBoer comes in, and just as importantly, Michael Penix, who everybody forgot about because he was hurt last year, but was so good for Indiana the year before. So they played Kent State, and and they're all, they looked night and day different. Um, they and Kent State's a good MAC team. They are yeah. they are a good offense. Sean Lewis is a really good young coach. They're certainly so not worse than Montana. And yeah. yeah, they were Penix was doing whatever he wanted out there. I think five different guys caught touchdowns. Um, that's another one, kind of like Florida, where it imploded for them last year. But you 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 still felt like Washington's probably still got players, maybe not. Pac-12 championship players, but they've got players. And then a guy like Penix can come in and elevate it. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, the, the other one that kind of surprised me a little bit, um, Syracuse, Dino Babers is like a hard guy to predict, right? Oh, my God. And they All smashed the Louisville, smashed Louisville yesterday. Now, we know Sean Tucker's really good. You have Garrett Schrader, who is like, you know, the bearded quarterback back from the Mississippi State days, which felt like, you know, felt like he was there when Jackie Sherrill was there. Was <laughs> so long, you know, felt like so long ago. But like, you know, I kind of had an eye on that for a little bit. And I was like, man, I expected Louisville – and again, it's one week, but like they they look like they're going to have a rough season if Syracuse handled them the way they did. Um, you know, you have both coaches. I think that have some have a lot of pressure on them. So we shall see. Uh, I agree with you on that one. I mean, I think the under the radar storyline there is like I remember you writing about Dino Babers when he was at Eastern Illinois. He was a Baylor guy. He ran the you know wide open uh, offense, and and they won ten games a, a few years ago. But it's that that's completely gone. Like that's not what he's doing there now. He brought in Robert and I, who was with Bronco, Bronco Mendenhall at both BYU and Virginia, who most recently was seen turning Brennan Armstrong into a four thousand something yard passer. And so Garrett Schrader, when he was at Mississippi State, you know, was a guy who who you didn't think of as a pal. He just ran the whole time. Well, I mean, he put up huge numbers against Louisville, both through the air and running. So. Yes, we will keep an eye on that. We also keep an eye on the mighty Rutgers Scarlet Knights who went to BC and and pulled out a nice uh, non-conference road win. Um, James Madison won its first FBS game by by a huge margin. Oh, man. You talk about... All right. There's, there's two that you're like, oof, that's not going well. Navy uh, used to be an annual bowl team has really fallen off from that, and they lost their opener to Delaware. You know, Kenny Amatololo is a guy who you once thought, hey, why is he still at Navy? Why hasn't he gotten a better job? I don't – He he's now, to me, a, a hot seat coach, the way things are going there. Yeah, things have definitely, like you said, fallen off there in the last couple of years. And, you know, look, Delaware, that was Ryan Carty's first game. He's a really well-thought-of offensive coach. Um, it's a good start for them. I mean, they were look like they were in control much of it. Whenever I looked over, it was like they were up two touchdowns and seemed to be seemed to be handling things. And it didn't look like um, they were up two touchdowns. I felt like it was like fourteen to seven most of the time. It was just like when is Navy going to get going? And they really just didn't. And then the um, other one I was going to mention: if you watched the Pac-12 After Dark game, you saw Oregon State just take it to. Boise State, and we both like Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, and I think that they are an under-the-radar program, but 
this is not this is not the Chris Peterson Boise State or even the um, Brian Harson Boise State. They went seven and five last year, and I mean, they had to he had to bench uh, Hank Bachmeyer, who's been their quarterback forever, because he had three turnovers real quick. They had like five turnovers on the night. This this was not what I think of as vintage Boise State. I wonder if they're in trouble. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I watched that game as well. I. You know, I keep thinking back to I had done a game where it was that matchup in it was felt like it was the beginning of the end of the Gary Anderson tenure at that point. And Boise just smashed them. You know, it just felt like it was like after a Victor Bolden early touchdown, it was like it just seemed like there was like, okay, this should be the Pac-12 team and this should be the Mountain West team. And yesterday it just looked like Oregon State looked like they have taken another big step forward. You know, and, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it's one day and they played Boise and Oregon played played Georgia and they played them on the road. But it was like the talent gap, if you look at like the recruiting rankings, would be would be a massive gulf between the Ducks and the Beavers. I'm not so sure it's that big of a gulf, a gulf at this point. Well, the talent gap is still a gulf, but the... I mean, I, I know, know what I have in Jonathan talent. Smith, a really good offensive coach. I don't know what we have yet in Dan Lanning. And I would say this, so Stu. I don't know. Like, sometimes we define talent, and I don't know if we always do it, but it's like, okay, this is what they were ranked in high school. Or this is what they were rated in high school. And guys develop differently, you know? And, like, I don't, it's it, it works out that way a lot of times. It doesn't work that way. You know, like, that's not the only way to, to look at it. You know, again, I'm not saying – Oregon's going to go five and seven and, and the Beavers are going to go nine and nine and three, but like they have players that do not look like they were like two star guys like Luke Musgrave. You know, if you look at him athletically is every bit like a five star kind of, you know, talent in terms of what he is athletically. They have some guys who are, who are really good football players. And chance Nolan, their quarterback has been, you know, a guy who, He's, he gets the job, he loses the job. He gets the job, he loses the job. You know, he looked really good last night, even though he threw two picks. By the way, if you watch an Oregon State game this year, it's a very um, interesting thing. They're they doing construction on the stadium, and so one entire side of the stadium is empty. All the fans are on the other side. Uh, they did a few, you know, uh, overhead shots. Not overhead shots, but, you know, shots of that, that side. And uh, it was very surreal for a Pac-12 football stadium. Um, okay, so let's talk about Friday, which if this had been announced in June, would have been headline news. We talk about it for a week. College football is going to a 12-team playoff. Instead, it was announced at 3 p.m. on a Friday before the first Saturday of games. And I like, I feel like there was almost no reaction to this ostensibly uh, major news. Maybe also, though, because we've been talking about it for two and a half. Well, we've been talking about 12 teams for two and a half years, but... It feels like it. I mean, it was June of 21 that they first made this proposal. And then I don't know how many times on this podcast you would you would be like, give us an update. <laughs> like, what's going on? What's the what's the latest on this? And the latest was always nothing. They, they can't agree on anything. Um, well, the president's got sick of it and took it into their own hands. And voila, we have a 12 team playoff coming. So for you, what was the most interesting underlying aspect of this because right now where it stands maybe they can bump it up to starting in 2024 as opposed to 2026 um my understanding is they would need a lot of a lot of cooperation slash push from from their tv partner to make to make some of this some of the deck chairs move around what do you think is like oh this is a really interesting thing i hadn't thought of i got one for you but let me hear what you think well, just the way it came about, uh, we found out on Wednesday that, oh, by the way, these this group of presidents who went rogue uh, are going to meet on Friday and probably approve this thing. And this is after eight months of the commissioners holding meeting after meeting after meeting and never being able to, to get a consensus. Uh, because of that, I think what's going to be very interesting is, okay, they basically said, we're doing this. 12-team playoff. Basically the same exact format that was proposed a year and a half ago, right? With the six highest ranked conference champs 
Um, which, by the way, I mean, the Pac-12 voted against this thing last time. But that was before USC and UCLA left. They should be ecstatic that this thing got approved now. And all of those conferences, frankly, because their champion is going to go to this almost every year. Um, but they basically said, all right, we're doing this. Commissioners, go figure out the details. Go figure out how to make it happen. Because like you said, trying to get it, they definitely cast it as, we we really want you to make this go into effect by 2024. As it, so if you can't, so now the notion is that if they don't do that, they screwed up again. But as you said, like, there are some huge obstacles they have to work around to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's TV inventory that people need to to shift around at that point. It's going to be a lot of a lot of money. I mean, I don't know if if ESPN wants those, you know, wants can afford all those games. Can somebody else? How much can can another broadcast partner handle on that? Those are those are big TVD things to sort out because I think for a lot of people, they sit there and go, "Of course, they would want all that. You know, they'd want these games." But then the cost of it is, I think, a different thing when you talk to people who are involved in the process. For me, the thing that I was kind of like, um, kind of tilting my head at a little bit was the ask, the notion that Notre Dame, obviously independent, not in the conference, let's say they are number one throughout the year and they are undefeated. You know, they would not be able to get a buy in the, you know, when the playoff seeds come out. The best they could do is number five. Um, and, you know, I talked to a Notre Dame person, not Brady Quinn on this, but as a different Notre Dame person who had pointed out, well, they don't play in a conference title game. So the buy thing and, and, you know, they're comfortable with that from, you know, the people that I talked to about Jack Swarbrick's perspective on that. But it's still I was thinking like, well, if you're them, why would you still not go into that thinking well, if we're number one, why would we not have a chance to get in that spot if, let's say, you know, let's fast forward a couple of years down the road. Let's say it's not 2024. Let's say it's 2025 or 2026. This level that Marcus Freeman seems to be recruiting at is, is, a, is a cut above where it had been under Brian Kelly. If the talent level is that much better, USC certainly we think is going to be a lot better under Lincoln Riley. They looked you know, good from what we saw in a debut against the bad rice team, but they beat USC in the, let's say they beat USC in their rivalry game and they're undefeated and they're 12 and 0 and USC is, um, you know, whatever, 11 and two or 12 and one. Um, USC could be number four in the polls and have lost to Notre Dame and still not get a, you know, and still get a buy where Notre Dame doesn't. Right. I know there's a lot of ifs and contingencies, but just like it surprised me that given Notre Dame has had so much juice with the CFP folks that they would not. That's off the table for them. Well, remember, Jack Swarbrick was one of the people that that wrote this proposal. So there were four. I know. There was I, a subcommittee I know. of four. And he, so it. he he's fine. Clearly, he's fine with it. And I think that for him, like each of those four guys that were on that group, right, Sankey. Swarbrick, Craig Thompson. Craig Thompson, and Bowlesby, who I caught up with on Friday. He's now retired. I caught up with him on Friday. It was kind of amusing. He's, I read, I re, he didn't even know the, the, the details, so I read it to him, and he's like, sounds familiar. Um, that's It's the same exact thing they couldn't reach an agreement on all those months. Uh, you know, they each probably went into it with, with an angle and then had to make some compromises. I think Swarbrick... Yes, that not being able to get a buy is a thing, but I think it was more important to him that there's a lot of at-large spots. Because if they had come out and said, because remember, it was, it was an eight-team playoff was what we all thought was going to. So if it was going to be an eight-team playoff and, with six, you know, berths locked down to conferences, that probably, to me, would have forced them to join a conference because there'd be almost no entry point for them. Uh, I think they feel a lot better about a system with six at-larges, so... Now, it, the whole concept, though, this is one of those things that looks yeah, good on paper, right? We're going to save the, the 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 buys for the four champions. like So you got to win your conference. And I think a lot of people are like, that's how it should be. That's how it is in the NFL, right? You win your conference, you, you get favored status. But it is going to be interesting the first time that fourth champion is ranked 13th in the country 
and other teams have to. Georgia right. last year would have been a number five seed. But we're also going to go into this probably knowing that there's not there's probably not going to be divisions at the time. So if you're thinking uh, Minnesota could knock off Ohio State and Minnesota could be number twenty when they knock them off, my guess is they won't be playing that. They won't be structured that probably way. Probably not. I think that's that's right. I think the other interesting dynamic here is in terms of you know my initial thought was did they do this in, in, to try to stabilize conference realignment? I don't think that was the case, but. If, say, you're Oregon, now money is money, and right? It's going to be, if the Big Ten came calling and wants to give you $80 million a year, that's hard to turn down. But from a pure football perspective, if you're Oregon, would you rather be, I mean, once USC and UCLA leave, once USC leaves, it's right, it's Oregon and Utah are kind of the only two programs left that we think of as playoff contending programs. Would you rather be in that situation knowing that if you win the conference, you're going to the playoff? Or jump to the Big Ten and be in the mix for that spot with Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, USC, etc. You know, at what point is it actually to your advantage? Same thing with the Big 12. Once Oklahoma and Texas leave, if you're Oklahoma State, if you're Baylor, uh, if you're Iowa State, you know that if you win the playoff, if you win the conference, you're going to the playoff. If the money is so different, though, if we're talking about you maybe making down the road half the money... Because it's not like the gap isn't going to get bigger, Stu. Right? The money is only going to grow that much more between the haves and the have-nots. Right. So, I I mean, I get why you think that. I don't know if people who are, like, actually involved in, like, decision-making would look at it that way. I don't think they're looking at that. They're looking at, like, we can't afford not to go if we have that choice. It's hard to turn down the money. I mean, it'll help that... You know, once this, once they're able to take the thing to an open market in 2026, everybody's going to be making more money from the playoff, like substantially more money. But that doesn't help you close the gap because the Big Ten and SEC are going to get that money too. The TV thing, I don't quite understand um, in terms of, of, like, we haven't, I haven't been able to get a straight answer from anyone in terms of if they go to an expanded playoff before the end of the contract. There's four new games. Does ESPN automatically get them? Do they have first right of refusal? Uh, like, is there a like, what's the scenario where Fox or CBS or NBC would come in and get part of the playoff before 2026? After it, anybody can get it, but before it, I don't know. And that that will certainly play a, a big part. But I think that the mandate was pretty clear. Hey, commissioners. We want this, and we want it as soon as possible. Go make it happen. So I think it would be in their best interest to figure out a way to get it in 2024. Um, guess what, guys? It's the time of year when we do two episodes a week. Uh, the plan is Sundays and Wednesdays. There may be weeks where travel or whatnot affects that a little bit. We're both traveling next weekend. But uh, Sundays and Wednesdays. The second episode, obviously first episode, Sundays, mostly talking about the games from the day before. Later in the year, some coach gets, it was when the coaches start getting fired on Sundays, and we have to adapt to that. Uh, Wednesdays will be, first and foremost, mailbag. So send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. There will probably be news during the week for us to address, Um, and obviously looking ahead to the next weekend's games, but definitely mailbag, so send those questions in. And we'll see you on Wednesday.